If you have a Bible, please make your way to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is where we will spend our time this morning. So remember, this is Matthew, the apostle, the tax collector, and I can tell you that we are so privileged to have the word of God. We are so privileged to have his word. I don't think we often realize the treasure that it truly is, and the words of Jesus will be powerful and striking to us this Lord's day. This is what he writes beginning in verse 29. I am only going to read the end of what is called a parable of Jesus. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a challenging text. We'll see what Jesus says leading up to this moment here in the coming moments together. Before we do that, why don't you pray and ask the Lord to speak to you through the Holy Spirit. We've been addressing him this morning. Ask the Holy Spirit to clearly communicate to you what God is saying through his word for your life And then I will pray for us and we will dive in together. Father, this morning as we sing to you, we sing about salvation. And that there's a work of salvation that is risen up within us. Those moments when we learned about Jesus Christ, your son, that he was more than a man that he was divine, that his life was more than simply the death of a martyr. It was the death of divinity. And through his death, we have life and life eternal if we would simply submit and acknowledge who he is. And once we do that, Father, you promise us your Holy Spirit. It is that same Holy Spirit who works through the lives of men and women throughout centuries so that we could have your word and hear from you directly. And so, Father, I pray that you would just be with us this morning as we listen to what it is that you would tell us. I pray that we would have eyes to see. I pray that we would have ears to hear. Father, move in our hearts in your name. Amen. Money has a way of translating our romantic language into naked truth. Money exposes our hearts like nothing else does. I was reminded of this last week when my son Josiah and I, with a few of his buddies, went to Kobo, and we were at the auto show. And while we were at the auto show, by far, I think in his mind, the greatest display that was there was something that took three months to build, just three months, and it had 334,000 plus pieces to it. It was the Speedwagon Batmobile, life-size edition, built by Chevy and Lego. And so we saw that, uh, that Bat- Batmobile, Speedwagon is what they're calling it, it's the Batmobile in this new Lego movie that's going to be coming out. That's just a shameless plug for a Lego movie, but... Um, And so he saw that, and he was just so enthralled by it. 
and just so wowed by its size and presence and all of those things. So I asked him after the auto show, which one would you have? Would you take the brand new Mercedes? Would you take the Audi? Would you take the Nissan NSX? Would you take the Ferraris down in the basement of Kobo? Would you take a Lamborghini? He said, I'll take the Lamborghini, but I think if I really had to choose one, it would be that speed wagon, (laughs) even though the speed wagon didn't even move. (laughs) Although I, like a kid, it was funny. We're all standing around. There's ropes around it. And, you know, you just kind of want to touch it. I don't know why. You just kind of want to touch the Legos. I, I wanted to touch the Legos more than I wanted to touch the other car. So I reach out to touch it. And this lady's just like, stop. No, don't touch. And so I back off. I'm like, so sorry. I didn't realize there were signs everywhere saying don't touch. But I, it was the temptation. So I wanted to touch. The next three people as we stood there that went to touch that thing that got yelled at, none of them were kids. They were all adult men that <laughs> also went after the same thing. But Josiah, he came home last week, we've been talking about this for some time, and he came in the house so excited and said, Dad, I did it, I did it. And it was the first time ever in his scholastic career that he's come home with straight A's. I am not a parent that will put any bumper sticker on a car. I don't really think that much about it when you're in third grade. But I did like the fact that he was trying to really push himself because sometimes he struggles with the reading aspects and the spelling aspects and the other stuff he does pretty well at, and he really worked hard. And so he, uh, d- he really put his effort in, he got the results, and I told him he'd be rewarded. So he came home, he said, Dad, I did it, how much do I get? And so Katie and I had talked about it, and we decided to give him $30. It was a specific number because it was halfway to the Lego price for that Speedwagon Batmobile, which cost $60 in the Lego store. And so we went to the Lego store, and just to kind of, you know, whet his appetite a little bit, I said I was going to show him this, this set, and I knew he'd want it, so I went in there, and this is the first time I think he actually truly understood the the. how much money actually is worth. So we walk in there. He sees the Batmobile set. He sees that 60 bucks. He's like, how much are you giving me again? I said, $30. He's like, but but I can't buy it. I said, no, no, you probably have to do it again. You probably have to save up to get there. And so he kind of comes back, but then I hit him with another question. I said, but but are you going to give any of that to the Lord? And he said, why would I do that? (laughs) I worked for it. I put in all the effort. I was the one who came home from school and did all the studying and did all the stuff. And so why would I do that? And I said to him, well, who gave you your brain? See, I think a lot of times we're kind of like this where money exposes our hearts and our priorities like nothing else. A person can say, for example, I love the poor, but not give any resources to help their cause. So they are exposed as not really loving the poor. And instead of feeling, uh, but instead they, they often tend to feel good as though they do love the poor simply because they've said they love the poor. 
The same can be true of the gospel. A person can say, I love the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then not give any or much money and time to advance the gospel's cause. So they are exposed as not really loving the gospel, but instead feeling good about themselves by thinking they love the gospel because they said they did. Talk is cheap, I've heard it said. Money is expensive. So it's easy to be religious with our cheap talk, but to be secularists with our expensive money. But to the Christian, we have a different way. We've been commanded to live a different way. We've been exemplified a different pattern through the life of Christ. We take our money and resources and use it to advance God's purposes on earth, not our own. So if we have a house, we fill it with people for the purpose of the gospel. If we have a car, we use it to take us to where we can serve others. If he gives us a job, we work to help others who are, we are working with as well as those we are working for. If he gives us income, then we take out a first offering and support the ministry of the gospel. If he gives us many years on the earth, then we use all of them as an instrument of God's for the purpose of the gospel. See, we are continuing a series, this is week two, a short series, three weeks, called Counterintuitive on financial stewardship. Something that we don't speak on too much, but is very much part of the counsel of God's word. And today we will be looking at a passage that goes far beyond financial stewardship and ends up covering all of life, as you will see. The series is called Counterintuitive because the things that Jesus taught were opposed or counter to the intuition of the world. The ways of the kingdom, which is constantly what he talked about, and that's actually what the manifestation of his life was. It was the display of the kingdom of God brought to the earth. All of that work was against the intuition of the world, against the natural way of thinking of the world. So today we are going to look at a parable of Jesus. And if you like to take notes, just a reminder, it's important to understand what this type of literature in the Bible is. A parable, they are simple stories meant to illustrate spiritual truth. Simple stories meant to illustrate spiritual truth. You may have heard it said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I personally prefer to say a parable is an earthly story with a new earth meaning. Here's why I say it that way. Because remember, friends, when God fulfills all that he has spoken to us, when he brings about all of the promises that he has communicated to us in his word, heaven comes down to the earth and God makes his dwelling with his people so that the earth becomes heavenly. So parables prepare us to be citizens of the new earth. Jesus is teaching us how to participate in the kingdom of God, which will one day all be wrapped up here as God comes to dwell with his people. He's preparing us to be citizens of this new earth in light of our current world. So parables also, we need to know that they have a structure. They have a context, they have a story, and then they have an application. And so we're going to walk through each of those with this parable this morning. So now first let's talk about the context. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he was going to leave them and he's preparing them and responding to questions or by responding to questions that they had recently asked. One of the questions was that Jesus had said to them that the temple would be destroyed. Now they thought of course that he was speaking of the physical temple in Jerusalem 
he kind of did a play on words, and he was ultimately talking about both, the temple of Jerusalem as well as his own body that would be destroyed and then be resurrected. Now, in this case, they were probably confused by all of it because this particular discourse, it's called the Olivet Discourse. It was the last sermon of Jesus communicated to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, if you know a little bit of the geography there, you have Jerusalem, the city, then there's what's called the Kidron Valley. There's a small little valley right outside the gates of the city. You walk down the valley, you walk up the hill right next to the city, that is the Mount of Olives. And so they were standing on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city probably during Tuesday or Wednesday of the Passion Week, the week before he was, the, the week that he was crucified. And he's giving them this last sermon and, and he's talking about his second coming and he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. They're looking over this great city, its huge walls, and saying, how can that place be destroyed? I don't even see how that would be possible. They're looking at the giant boulders of stones placed there by King Solomon, the bigger stones that were placed on top of it by King Herod, uh, the majesty of the entire city, its, its beauty and glory. At that time, it was certainly one of the greatest cities within the Roman Empire, And as they looked upon it, they just couldn't comprehend. It would be like somebody coming to us to say, there will not be a single stone upon a stone left in Washington, D.C. It will be utterly destroyed. And we might think, well, we have defenses. There's no way. That wouldn't happen. So they're asking Jesus, how could this be? How could this happen? And so he's preparing them for the destruction that is to come. He's talking about that destruction that's going to come to Jerusalem, but all of it is anticipating what he is going to say that when he dies, when he resurrects, he will one day, he is telling them ultimately, he will return. He's talking about his second coming. And so what he does through these parables is he's telling the future. It's called foretelling, the fall of Jerusalem and his second coming, but he's also foretelling about the present and the future. And basically telling them how should they live in light of these events that are about to occur. That's what he's after. How are we supposed to live in light of the events that Jesus is talking about? So for us today, how should we live anticipating the second coming of Christ? That is the context of this story. Jesus, through these parables, he talks about a thief in the night in chapter 24, a faithful servant in Matthew 24, 10 virgins in Matthew 25, and then the talents, that's the one we'll look at today in Matthew 25. All of them basically say the same message. As we are anticipating the second coming of Christ, watch, stay awake, be alert, and you better be ready. Be prepared. Parables then have a storyline. So now we know the context. What is the story? This story unravels in three scenes, or it's described in three scenes. Here's the first. It's the distribution of the talents. Look at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The it here refers back to the kingdom of heaven. So all of these parables are talking about the kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom of the earth. We find that out from Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. So the kingdom of heaven, he says, he likens it to a man going on a journey. And we find out that this man is not just any man. He's also described in the story as the master. 
The word for master, it's kurios. It, it means Lord. It's used nine times within this story. So the man who's going on the journey, who leaves the property, who is also the master, which is also the Lord, is a reference to Jesus. He's talking about himself through this story. So he says, a man will be going on a journey, and he calls his servants, and he entrusts to them his property. And so this property is described as talents. Now, the word talent, it was a Greek word, talenton. It, it was the greatest or largest unit of currency they had at their, at their time. It was a way of measuring monetary value based on weight, the weight of gold, the weight of silver. It was a weight attributed to a particular precious metal. And it was the largest form of money or the largest number that they would use within their conversations. And it was an incredible amount. Around the 15th century, so thousands of years later, or I'm sorry, hundreds of years later, the, the word talent in English came to mean ability or aptitude. That's the way we use it, right? You've got a talent. So you've got a talent to sing, to be an athlete, to be a businessman, to be a teacher, to be a doctor. You have talent. It's an ability or an aptitude. And yet, how did the word change from meaning money to ability. The answer is this parable. They started using the word talent from this parable so frequently as something beyond money that people started thinking about talent as something other than money. Now that is true. It is true. Talent can be viewed as something beyond money, but it certainly also involves money. So a talent is money, but it goes beyond that. It symbolizes these other areas, other talents that people have in life, resources and gifts. And it's a large amount of money as well. A talent was um, equivalent to, I found this interesting, 20 years of what we would today call our minimum wage. So in essence, it, a talent was about $370,000. So lest you think that the one that was only given one wasn't given much, he was given a lot. The one with two and the one with five so about three quarters of a million and about two million dollars is the amounts of property that Jesus is illustrating here. I find that kind of interesting, actually. It tells us about the fleeting nature of money itself, that you could work 20 years, your blood, sweat, and tears poured into a job, and all you get after that 20 years is a little pile of weighty metal. That's how you sum the whole thing up. Here, you gave me your whole life? Here's one little bar. Enjoy. It's just so fleeting. It's so fleeting. It's not a good strategy for life. So this ma master gives five talents to one, two talents to another, and one to the other, according to their abilities, it says. Now, the one, the two, and the ten remind me of another parable that Jesus shared, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And do you remember that parable? Because that's going to give us a little bit of comparison to this story. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus is talking about the sinful debt that God has forgiven us. And do you remember what he likened it to? 10,000 talents. If five talents is two million, imagine the wealth of 10,000 talents. And what Jesus was saying was the debt that God forgives you through Jesus' life, 
death, and resurrection is comparable to a debt of 10,000 talents. The work of Christ and the forgiveness that is ours through faith is infinitely more valuable than everything else we have in this world. Everything. And so even when he transitions here about giving people resources and property, one, two, five, it is nothing in comparison to the debt that he paid on our behalf. If you have not received Christ, you still have that debt. But because of Christ, it can be forgiven simply through faith. It's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the message that these servants were meant to use their talents to propagate. And so they go off with these talents to serve him. And it says he was given them these talents according to his ability. It could be translated according to his power. It's a unique word that means ability or power. It might sound odd. It might even sound unfair. Why is one given one, one given two, and one given five? That's not fair. Why does he have more talent than I do? Why does she have more talent than I do? Whether that's monetary resource or gifts and abilities. However you want to define it. We might think, God, that doesn't seem right. But lest we, not, lest we think that God is just unjust, let's remind ourselves of a few things. This is always the way he is. Does God have the right to expect some within his kingdom to carry more than others? Did Peter have a different purpose than John? Did John have a different purpose than Mary? Did Mary have a different purpose than Thomas? Did Thomas have a different purpose than Bartholomew? I mean, think about Bartholomew. You read through the New Testament, we know all kinds of stuff about Peter. Look about, think about how much he did. Think about how much responsibility was placed upon Peter. Bartholomew, we don't know anything. He's just in a list, like he's one of the 12. That's it. So why does Peter get all of this and Bartholomew, he's just kind of there? Is that fair? What, what is God doing here? The point is that we have all been given different resources to accomplish our specific task. All of us have been given different resources to accomplish our specific task. I'll circle back to this in a moment. So what did they do with these talents? That's the second scene within the story, the use of the talents. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So at once, the first servant goes and trades with his talents. He puts it to work, in other words. He is working with his master's resources to make a difference for his master's kingdom. That's what he did. The same with the second. But the last servant, he, he goes and he digs a hole and he places the money within the ground. Two of them worked and worked faithfully and doubled it. The last one played it safe and buried it. Then scene three comes, the accounting time. Verse 19. Now after a long time, we do not know when Jesus will return. Jesus himself said a long time. People try to figure it out. They try to read the newspaper and try to treat it like it's a decoder ring for the Bible. It's a useless endeavor. We will not know. We will not ever know. The first person tells you they know, they're speaking against the word of God. And yet, 
the, the urgency is still the same. Be prepared, be prepared, be prepared. And so he says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the master returns after a long time, and he comes to settle accounts. He settled accounts. What's that communicate to us? What's Jesus saying to us? Well, he's saying that it turns out that all of it is his. All of it is his. The one talent, the two talents, the five talents, the servants themselves, everything is his. And he's going to come back and have people give an account. It's like me saying to Josiah, who gave you your brain? <laughs> Everything we have, even, even our physical selves, is ultimately not ours. It is all his. Maybe you don't like that language. Maybe you don't like the fact that it sounds like you are owned by God. And yet that is the very reality of Scripture. And whether you realize it in this lifetime or whether you realize it finally when he comes to settle accounts, the Bible makes it clear that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow at Jesus Christ. So he will come to settle accounts and he will come and ask you, all of you and me, what have you done with my talents? And there's nobody that we can look to and say, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. He's going to ask. So he came and settled the accounts. This is the good part of the story. This is the happy part. The one with five got five more. The one with two got two more. And the master, notice, says the same thing to both servants. So the point is, the amount of money they had or the amount of money they were managing wasn't the point. So this is important for us. Notice they both got the exact same reward. The point was what they did with what they had. The, the question was, were they faithful? You had two. Were you faithful? Yes. Reward. You had five. Were you faithful? Yes. The exact same reward. Our rewards, whether you have one, two, ten, or twenty, will be identical it's just a matter of whether we've been faithful with what we've been given. And that is up to the Lord's good pleasure on what that might be. So these were two, and they experienced a glorious homecoming of their master. But there was the third. He also, verse 24, who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid the talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. On the one hand, the servant seems sensible, right? 
somebody were to give you $370,000 and said invest it wisely and multiply it and work with it, you might think, wow, I'm overwhelmed by that task. I'm going to bury it. I'm scared of that. I don't want to get in trouble. I might fail there. But there's something else going on here, something deeper. On the other hand, look at his motivation. Think about what he is saying about his master. What does he believe about his master's character? Does his master love him? Is it someone who desires relationship with him? Is it someone who can be trusted? No, it is not. In his mind, his master does not have this man's respect. It does not have his trust. And so he says, basically, you're a hard man. You expected me to work with your property, your talent, to make more things and to produce things for you. Well, what about me? What about me? You wanted me to use this talent for you, and you're not even here. You're not even around. And and, and I'm just kind of expected to work. Do you know how hard this is? Do you know how hard it is to make a difference for your kingdom? So I'm just going to receive it. I'm going to bury it. I'm going to do the bare minimum because I'm fearful of you, and I can just say, here you go. Thanks. That's the third. But it sounds a lot to me like a lot of Christian lives. And so he buries it. And what does the master say? A lot of things we'd expect, but his master answered him, verse 26. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I... You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Why did I read it like that? It was a question mark. <laughs> it's a question. What is Jesus using here? What's the, what's, the, what's the thing that he's using in his language? It's called, and we love it in America, sarcasm. <laughs> he's saying, so you're telling me that you really think that I had nothing to do with this, that I wasn't responsible for any planting, any reaping, that this was just kind of all on you, like I just kind of stepped out of it and it was all up to you. That's really what you think? Are you crazy? (laughs) That's what he's saying. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with who has 10 talents, basically reinvest it with somebody who's faithful. But then verse 29 comes, and this we don't expect. It turns and it becomes so harsh. Jesus says, for to everyone who has will more be given, okay, that's good, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, okay, he was irresponsible, But then verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Extreme. To whom much is given, much is required. The faithful servant is now replaced in this new adjective with the third servant. He's not called faithful. He's called worthless. Relationship is now replaced with a new reality, isolation. His future here is not joy. It is judgment. And that's how the parable ends. What is the parable's significance? 
Let me share with you three things. The first one I'll spend the most time on, and the second two will be brief. First, that God's gifts to us are far greater than we realize, and God's purposes for our lives are far greater than we realize. Basically, he has bigger plans for you than you know. Five talents, two talents, one talent, whatever, it's a lot of money. Any of us would take it. But this is no health and wealth gospel, friends. Let me remind you of this. I'm not saying Jesus wants you to enjoy the good life, live in great houses, drive great cars, treat yourself to great vacations. Not that these things, I'm not even saying these things are wrong. The point is that that's not the purpose of the parable. It's not that we're to say he's the king, we're his children, so we should live as kings and queens. This is how many churches apply this parable, but the approach is incorrect and irresponsible. How do we know this? It's incorrect because if you read any of the Gospels from beginning to end, you will walk away with a sense that Jesus pulls us towards a life of simplicity, towards a life focused on him. It's also irresponsible because a majority of Christians around the world, millions upon millions, mind you, live in poverty, many in persecution. So is God not your king if you live in a hut? How dare we distort the gospel beyond recognition? It drives me absolutely nuts. It angers me when I see some of my brothers and sisters with their businesses online or on Facebook saying, you know what, I trusted God with a little and look how much he gave me in this world. And if you would just give him a little, then you will get all this too. Jesus gave him Everything, had nothing, and died. That's not how God's kingdom works. It's counterintuitive. Jesus gave everything, and he gained nothing here, but he gained everything there. Treasures in heaven, where wrath, or where moth, and rust do not destroy. What are you doing with your talents? How are you using them? God wants us to think bigger. He wants us to use our resources. Yes, our, our cars and even our trips and our, res- our gifts, our abilities, our ability to create, to be a good entrepreneur, to be, to be a good friend, to be a good teacher, to be a good whatever the gifts might be. He wants us to spend these things to enjoy them. Yes, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God's given you. Solomon makes this abundantly clear in the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not like we should be ashamed of the blessings that we've been given, but use them. Use the talent for kingdom treasures. That's the point. And so God wants us to think bigger. He did this with his disciples all the time. He brings them along to a great crowd and he says, feed them. Well, there's 5,000. We can't do it. So you're suggesting I haven't given you enough resource. Yes, that's what we're suggesting. Let me show you how the kingdom works. He prays. He blesses the five loaves and the two fish. Remember, all 5,000 are fed until it says they were satisfied. Not like they got a dabble, they were full. And then after they were full, there were 12 basketfuls left over. Ironic, isn't it? One basketful for each apostle who didn't think there was enough. 
Jesus did this with his followers all the time. Whatever work I've purposed you to do, I will give you an abundance to accomplish it. And that's all you need. It might not look that way, but that's all you need. We think far too small. You've heard the phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That was said by William Carey, the father of missions who took the gospel to India. Here's what I call the American materialistic individualistic spin on that same expression. Expect great things from this life, attempt great things so you can live the good life now. And that is the deception that tempts us every day. Do you see it? We get convinced to live for now, to make our lives great in the eyes of the world. It's a consumeristic, me-first mentality that is not the way of the kingdom. Did you realize that God has placed you on a street for a purpose, in a work environment for a purpose, with gifts for a purpose, with resources for a purpose, with a personality for a purpose? He will someday come and settle accounts. And what he wants to use you for is far beyond what you and I can imagine. He wants to use us. He's not a fearful, vengeful God holding a hard stick waiting to slam us. He's saying, look what I've blessed you with. I've forgiven your 10,000 and I've given you five more, 10 more or two more or whatever. And I'm here with you. Not only that, I've given my spirit and put it inside of you so that I will carry on my work to completion. Well, God expects, secondly, us to develop those gifts and use them for him. Let me share these two points very quickly. Think about what Jesus said to those who were faithful and those who used the talent that he had given them for the kingdom. Three things he says. He affirms them by saying, well done, good and faithful servant. He entrusts them with even more. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. He invites them third into his joy. Enter into the joy of your master. Basically, he's saying the reward for all that work will be his presence. That's the reward. There's other, there's other trimmings and frosting that comes with it. But ultimately, it's his presence. That, that's the reward. And he says, you will experience my presence, and when you experience my presence, you will have everything you need. Well, contrast that with the third servant. And that reminds us of a third principle here. Let's be prepared for accounting day. Did you notice the parallels between the master, what he said to the two faithful ones, and the one who was not? It was not affirmation he received, instead it was condemnation. It was not greater responsibility, it was that his responsibility was taken away. It was not joy in relationship, it was desperation and isolation away from his presence. And here was the shocker of the entire parable. Here's what got the people at that time and even today where they stopped and went, whoa. All three servants called Jesus Lord. They all thought they were in. They all thought that they were his servants. But only two 
through their life, demonstrating their faith proved to be. It's an interesting parable, isn't it? Because typically when you think about good preaching and Jesus was the best, you want to give people the hopeful ending, right? <laughs> Let's land this thing on the good news so we can all leave like feeling great. And by the way, I want to do that. I believe in that principle because if we come in here every morning and really truly believe the gospel, then we ought to leave this place encouraged because the gospel spoken to us. That's good news. So if we don't feel like we have good news, then, then we haven't heard the gospel. But at the same time, Jesus here ends this story. He leaves the good part in the middle. That's where the good servants were. And he ends it with like a horror movie. <laughs> Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we wonder why the crowds thinned out. Why did he do that? Because he cared so much about us that he wanted us to hear the warning. We cannot say, God, yeah, you're my master. I'm burying all this stuff from you because the truth is, I don't know why you want me to live and carry that cross. That's too hard. What's in it for me? I'm going to live the life the way I'd like to. And at the end, I'll say, thank you very much for salvation. Can I come in? That's not how it works. If we've received the treasure, then we know the treasure the treasure's value. And when we know the treasure's value, it's a piece of gold. It's not a piece of coal. Then we will invest our lives into it. But here's a verse, because I do want to leave us with hope. Philippians 1.6. I referenced it before. And I am sure of this. I'm sure, Paul says. God tells us, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work, a good work, wants us to work, to use our gifts, our resources, our talents. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ at his second coming. We'll finish. He will finish. But we must ask ourselves, what are we doing with our talent? How is it being spent? Is it being buried? Is it being invested for something that will last forever? 